everybody does want to have a sense of belonging. Part of the challenge, perhaps, of the time we're living in is that a lot of people can feel totally disconnected, can feel totally fragmented and, and isolated. How do we rediscover being at home in a family, in inverted commas, not necessarily your own family, that you feel comfortable with, but also being able to go out from the family and, and be part of this wider thing? I have a bit of post-evangelical envy of the sense of home that is established by a tradition that manages to flex a bit with change but maintain its identity. When you're a post this or a post that, yes. you're, you're yeah. a, a sort of ideologically homeless. <laughs> yes, you're, yes. You're a not that, you've yes. left that house. You're listening to Common Era, a podcast about spirituality in an age of change. For our first season, we're hosting a conversation between author and musician David Benjamin Blower and Nicholas Postlethwaite, a Catholic priest from the monastic order known as the Passionists. In this episode, David and Nicholas talk about the Silk Road of spiritualities, the idea that we're in an era where different faith groups are drawing on one another's wisdom and traditions. In some places, there seems to be less suspicion and more openness between these groups than ever before. David and Nicholas talk about this flow of influences, how it's affected them, and conversely, the search for belonging or home in a fixed spiritual tradition. So I asked a friend a while ago, it was a few years ago, a Catholic guy, whether he did bonfire night, because I suddenly sort of realised, I don't know why, I suddenly felt conscience-stricken that um, we would go every year and join in this celebration where we um, executed a Catholic. <laughs> and um, he said it hadn't passed his notice, but, you know, they didn't really worry about it too much and got on with it anyway. In the, uh, in the, as the conversation unfolded, I learned that the hokey-cokey, the dance that we all did as children, where you dance inwards and outwards, was kind of a Protestant slur on Catholic mass, which I had no idea about. And you begin to realise how, in so many ways, in your culture and your, not just your theology, not just when you're aware you're talking about theological things, your position in the world is being defined against the thing that you're not. And so for me, growing up, all things Catholic were a bit suspect, I guess. My theological spine was shaped in reaction to why I was told what Catholic beliefs, which actually turned out to be far more complicated than the rough things that were passed down. And now my world is very, very different. Everybody I know is reading Thomas Merton and Henry Nguyen and Richard Rohr and, and then all these Catholic mystics, Julian of Norwich, John of the Cross. There's suddenly this wonderful openness. Evangelicals and post-evangelicals are drinking from that well. I think there's all kinds of reasons why we found ourselves not only free to do so, but actually kind of needing to do so. There were things that we really realised we didn't have in the realm of spirituality. Actually, I think a lot of Protestantism, because it wanted to stamp out activities by which you appeared to be trying to earn your salvation or something like that, almost rinsed itself of a spirituality. It, it developed its own in, in certain ways, but there was this slight impoverishment of uh, spiritual practices. Now I think we sort of found ourselves on this silk road of spiritualities where 
there's the freedom, but also the need to draw on all these other wells. I'm curious and interested about whether that works the other way in, in you know, do Catholic people sit around together and read Dietrich Bonhoeffer or, uh, or what have you? Is, is there any way in which that goes the other way? Yeah, well, I mean, just, just speaking of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I mean, you're certainly speaking to a Catholic who loves Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I, I found that the inspiration that came from him and so many other within the, within the tradition absolutely mesmerising. It highlighted the reverse of what you were experiencing. I mean, I was brought up in a Catholic situation where there would be a suspicion of things Protestant. I mean, going back to your original point about talking to the Catholic about the Guy Fawkes Day, the day when the first Passionist who was making the break from leaving Italy to move to England, which was in 1840s, got off the boat at Dover, and it was the 5th of November, and had had no experience at all of sort of like what were all these bonfires doing. And he was a he was Italian, and he was he was coming in with a funny accent. He didn't speak English very well, so he was he was confronted from the very first day in in England. The English Catholic Church was just emerging in the eighteen mid nineteenth century. From there hadn't been allowed to be any Catholic bishops appointed until the mid the mid nineteenth century. So, so the shift the other way, where, where Catholicism was regarded as, as, as subversive, it's been a long journey on that one. So what happened at the Reformation was, was very much needed in terms of the reform that happened, but unfortunately it, it created a, a sort of reaction from a Catholic point of view, which was often just as intolerant coming back, so that you, we've, we've inherited a whole backlog historically of where we're still working through some of that. But in terms of where we are today, I mean, I think that, that there's a total sea change in terms of a, a recognition on all sides. I mean, another of my favourite speakers, writers, inspiration now would, would be Rowan Williams, for instance. So the fact that he's coming from a from a Protestant background is is is, is a strength because he's bringing he's bringing the particular insights that come from that, and and I welcome that. And I think within any serious group of Catholics today, there wouldn't be any hesitation at all in sort of saying we 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 need to drink from one another's wells and not sort of think that it all comes from from our own. But having said that, it doesn't mean to say that that the, a lot of the effects of that sort of split and the way it was handled and mishandled on all sides uh, is still very much with us and, and there's still a lot of defensiveness around. So it comes back down to the thing we were talking about earlier about the, the undertaker midwife. Whichever area you look at, whether it's the ecumenical, the openness to, to enjoying the fruits of Quaker insights, radical Protestant thinking. I mean, some of the best writing on scripture has come from the whole Protestant tradition. Because certainly when I was growing up, there was a lot less emphasis in the Catholic tradition of, of needing to know the scriptures and to, to learn from them and to make them an, an important part. Because we would have emphasized the sacramental side and the symbolism side. Now I find it interesting listening to you, David, and sort of saying, well, yeah, perhaps perhaps it's, it's an ongoing two-way flow, if you can have a two-way flow where the strengths of each tradition can, can enrich the other one. So I would hope today those who are active would be working ecumenically rather than, you know, separately. Mm. Thinking about the Reformation, it's interesting to me because of our wider theme of the undertaker and the midwife, more than because we're having a dialogue as a yeah. Catholic and a Protestant. 
it's beautiful to be able to have this dialogue without the faintest um, inhibition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think we've either of us got any axe to grind, really. Obviously, the Reformation 500 years ago comes alongside so many other changes in terms of the Enlightenment, the development yeah. of a sort of capitalist yeah. economic model, the development of European colonial power over other continents in the world, all these kinds of things. And I won't hang it all on the Reformation, but it's, it's, you know, it's one mm. of those elements in the mix and no doubt made certain things possible. In a way, I, th I feel like many of the things that were set in motion around that seems to have come to a messy bookend at the, uh, at the other end where a lot of those things have come to roost. We're in a, in a place of metanoia, of rethinking, mm -hmm. of having to stop and mm -hmm. say, we are obliged to rethink, rethink everything. Yeah. yeah, which again is one of the painful, difficult, beautiful, hopeful yeah, it's, things it's, yes, about it's, the present. It is, yeah, I think it is hopeful. I mean, can, can I, I mean, one, as you were talking there, David, I was, I was thinking of a writer I very much um, admire is Charles Taylor who's, um, I think he's in his 80s now, he's a, he's a Catholic philosopher, Canadian philosopher. He would take the analysis of what's happened in the last 500 years and he'd characterise it saying that 500 years ago, everybody believed in God. They might not have been practising, they might not have sort of put it into practice, but there was, there was just a presumption that God was there, however confusedly, and whichever side you were coming from. And he said, if you take now the 500 years on, the presumption that God is there has gone for the vast majority of people. And he says, it's too simplistic to say it's a straight line. Why? Why has that happened? To say that there's a straight linear line as to why that has happened. And Taylor suggests that it's, it's been a zigzag process and that various factors, you've touched on some of them already, you know, from the French Revolution to the American Revolution to the Communist Revolution to... And these the zigzag factors, coupled with the philosophical changes that have been happening, and often the inadequacy of church groups of whichever persuasion to actually find a language and a way of actually becoming an integral part of what was going on, has left us with the, you would think you were using words like messy or bookend or, or we've, we've, we've arrived at a point where for the vast majority of people, they would say, well, well, why do we need to even consider the idea about whether there's a God or not? And he, he would go on to suggest, he says, well, what that, he says, there's no easy answer to it, but he says, it does push us back to say that unless we're prepared to re-examine all our, he, he terms that he, he has created this term, um, social imaginaries. And he uses the term social imaginary. He says it covers everything. It means all the things, culturally, philosophically, whatever way you, you want to describe it. What are those social imaginaries that we're not always conscious of, but which in fact dictate and, and orientate us forward? He said they all need to be put on the table. No easy task in order for us to start rethinking how do we approach the whole question of, in inverted commas, God, in a way that, that recognises that zigzag approach over the last 500 years and puts us in a different position now. And when, what I find attractive about the way he's placing the larger picture without trying to put in all the, all the details 
is that that gives a context in which the sort of conversation you and I are having now or the conversations that are going on in very many other places are given a sort of a coherence, uh, are sort of said, well, yeah, that's what we're doing. That's what we're trying to do. I might have said this to you before, Wittgenstein's thing of saying, when you use words, make sure you've first taken them to the dry cleaners because they accumulate so much dirt along the dirt. But, but in other words, they, they need to be clarified. And it all fits in, whether it's Wittgenstein, whether it's Charles Taylor, or whether it's the, the general feeling of what's happening in the world today. We're at a very different point of human existence. We're facing huge challenges ecologically, politically, militarily, etc. And unless those things are on the table, then, then I think it's right to be nervous and to be, to be afraid. On the other hand, if they are on the table, perhaps we're approaching a point where, where something wonderful is going to sort of emerge and we, we, can, we can begin to create that together. So we become co-creators of the way forward, which is different to the way that perhaps where I started from. One of the strange dynamics I see at work, and I don't really have good language for it, is that the world appears to be becoming more religious and more secular mm. all at once. But those two forces don't seem to be, as in the past, in antagonism. Mm -hmm. Actually, they seem to be mm -hmm. permeating each mm -hmm. other. So the, the secular realm feels just more awash in religious language mm -hmm. to the point where the concept of that as a distinct realm almost mm. starts to feel strange. The religious realm seems to be more and more comfortable with drinking from the wells of not just another tradition mm -hmm. within the religion, not just another religion, but all kinds of things. All, all things seem to be growing and mixing together. I recall being in London at an Extinction Rebellion protest in October 2019 and this fascinating scene this is obviously it's very carnivalesque and there's this incredible mix of outlooks and affiliations there and then at, at one point there was a row of people with a microphone in Trafalgar Square just taking it in turns to read a chapter of the book of Revelation mm -hmm. I and mean, it's not just like a few religious people in a corner it was the the thing that was going on at that time you know there's something going on all the time but that was what was going on for that hour or so and it's just you know it's almost weird they, yeah. they read the entire book out they didn't just read this bit or that bit they read it out you know the marvelous bits the ugly bits in this environment that wasn't a faith environment it wasn't no, not a faith environment mm. A naive, younger self would have seen this as, oh, good, the kingdom of God is coming because they're reading the Bible. Mm. You know, I would never view it that way. That's not, that's not exactly what I think is going on there. I don't think it's some sort of taking of ground for you know, the religious taking ground from the secular. Uh, I almost think it's the religious allowing itself to be permeated by yeah. the secular. It, yeah. goes, it goes completely both ways. I'm not sure what... <laughs> um, all of the outworkings of that um, of that happening, but that moment seemed to be a vision of the complexity and the mixing and the mm -hmm. growth that didn't seem to be about winners or losers. It just seemed to be about that silk road of spiritualities, everybody yeah. drinking from everybody's wells without any need to, to be a this or a that or to be a, nobody demanding membership from anybody. Mm. 
I, well, I mean, I, I wasn't there with you on that occasion, but I, I can really identify with what I think I'm hearing you saying on that. W would, would you feel that perhaps the fact that you were feeling comfortable with that and you could feel that things were, were coming together in a way that they perhaps wouldn't have come together in, in the past was, was an expression of the way that your particular journey has gone, that you've, you've come from a particular sort of tradition with its strengths, but also with its potential weaknesses, there's been a progression along the way which has brought you to a point where you can see the, the, the paradoxes that you're describing in terms of that, you know, reading the Book of Revelations in the middle of an Extinction Rebellion and, and sort of feel comfortable with it. Possibly that illustrates the, the, the journeys that perhaps we're all on, but we're all at different stages and it's not always recognised where we are. We perhaps don't always recognise it ourselves. I mean, I feel, for instance, why do I remain committed to the Passionist congregation, for instance, you know, particularly in light of it being as small as it is and where's it going? Well, it's been my sustaining community over 60 years. It's not always been easy. It's not always been a pleasant ride, but it's been a wonderful one. And I don't see any reason for letting go of that. I mean, it might come to an end, but I mean, but insofar as I've still got any energy and others are around, I would want to remain part of it. While at the same time saying, having had the particular journey that I've been on, I hopefully would feel at home in the Extinction Rebellion or at home in our conversation now or at home in wherever I find myself. So I don't feel constrained by my past, but I do feel that there's, there's a strength in still having roots that, that you can sort of go home to. That's an expression that the, the Pope uses in the encyclical I was telling you about, Fratelli Tutti, where he says, where do you feel you belong? And, and he's not asking the question narrowly, he's asking it in, in a wide context. But everybody does want to have a sense of belonging because part of the challenge, perhaps, of the time we're living in is that a lot of people can feel totally disconnected, can feel totally fragmented and, and isolated in that sense. So it's how do we rediscover being at home in a family, in inverted commas, not necessarily your own family, that you feel comfortable with, but also being able to go out from the family and, and be part of this wider thing. And perhaps that's where... Perhaps that's what we're moving towards, not always very clearly. Mm, and that, that dialectic is a real tension in my world. I have a bit of evangelical, post-evangelical envy of the sense of home that is established by a tradition that mm -hmm. manages to sort of flex a bit with change but maintain its kind of identity. When you're a post this or a post that, yes. you're, you're yeah. a, a sort of ideologically homeless <laughs> yes you're yes. A, you're a not that you've yes. left that house and you, you know well you use that at the beginning of our of our session you you very clearly sort of did say i'm post-evangelical and I, I must admit at the back of my mind i was sort of well yeah okay respect what you're saying but i would not be described at times i'm tempted to sort am i a lapsed catholic priest you know because and a lot of people probably think i am um <laughs> But I don't think I am. I feel I'm more than ever committed to where I've come from, even though I'm asking questions about, about how that's expressed today, both personally and collectively, in a way that I perhaps didn't before. So, mm. so, so do we need to shove the, the adjective of post on too quickly? Is there still some negotiation there that, 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 that needs to...? Yeah, I, I suppose for me the, the term post, to use it, is to say that you're in a liminal space. Right, okay. You, you're, you're not... That's my vestibule bit. Yeah, yeah, yes, the post is, is the vestibule. Oh, you're caught to the Gentiles, yeah. which is not post. 
No, no. It's, I suppose it's a liminal space in time or yeah. in ideological journeys, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's something a bit exilic yeah. about that language and that place. And that hurts, actually. The, the song I've referred to, which is, you know, the Babel myth, is called Home. And I think it's... Right, interesting. It's to do with that pain in leaving the tower. Yeah. Because truth compels you to find home scattered in creation. Because mm-hmm. that's, yeah. you know, that's yes. the home you've been given. Yeah. And there was something false about your way of designating this bit yeah. as home and that bit all to perdition that had to end. So the, the journey of making that home or finding a sense of home and feeling truly at home doesn't happen all at once, does it? For, no. for a while you're going to feel no. like a, a wanderer. And I think that's partly why on this silk road of spiritualities, evangelicalism as well as post-evangelicalism has sort of yearned for spiritualities mm-hmm. because it the lack of a home in practices, in rituals, in shared language and so on is is felt and you begin to almost pick up other stories as prototypes for what you might form as a a, a sense of home. I mean, listen to you you describing that little bit of it there. My mind is going back to the Liverpool experience for me because Austin and I were moving into a very specific community, the community of Toxteth, which is largely characterised by the experience of the black community. I mean, I love Liverpool, but Liverpool is a very racist city, as many places are. I'm not saying just Liverpool, but, but it has got a particularly racist history. And to move into that and to gradually begin to find that you were feeling very much at home in that community, because you, you were the guest coming in, you were the outsider who was being welcomed, meant that the concept of where was home was was subtly changing. It wasn't saying that I, as a white man coming in there, have had the experience that my black friends and neighbours have had, no. But it was saying that I was welcomed as a human being who, who was walking alongside the community there and was being enriched by them. And then the religious questions, would I describe myself as still Catholic or post evangelical or whatever were secondary they were important i'm not minimizing them but the the important stepping out of the tower of babel into toxteth meant that the experience of actually being alongside one another mostly with me it was with a lot with the young people i was working with that became the central bit and the rest sort of fell into place as a result of that then that that puts a different... It comes back down to what what I was trying to say earlier on about how the the passionist thing attracted me because first and foremost it says, tell me where those are at the margins, let's walk alongside, let's walk in support of them and then we'll work out the theology. I don't want to dramatise it, I'm trying to illustrate the tension, the creative tension that that can actually bring. That's why I'm, I'm glad to be a passionist because for all our limitations and all our, our things we, we'd like to do and we can't do, it's a good community on which to sort of say, well, okay, that's home. That'll give you a, a point of reference, a focus. Common Era is produced by Passionists in England and Wales. To find out more about us, look us up at passionists.org.uk. Join us for the next episode where Nicholas and David will be talking about monks, monastic orders and rules of life.